Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello. Before we start Storytime 95, which Jeff and I recorded on the balcony of my hotel in Gaul yesterday, a word about our pals at the Advanced Hair Studio. Now, if you've been listening to the weekly shows from Leeds, Gaul and Edgbaston over the last couple of weeks, you will know that Advanced Hair have partnered with The Final Word and we couldn't be happier collaborating with one of the most iconic cricket brands. Of course, they go back three decades in the game with Greg Matthews and Graham Gooch in the early days through to the late great Shane Warne, Darren Goff and many others across their journey. In those 30-odd years, Advanced Hair, the world leaders in hair replacement, have helped over 1 million people in their studios across the world. And because you're a friend of ours, you're a friend of theirs too. So much so that they're giving our community a 15% discount for getting your lid done. It's very cool for us at least that we have a webpage on the Advanced Hair site, advancedhairstudio.com forward slash final word. Head over there for the 15% discount. No code required. Just pop in your details and you're away. And of course, as ever with Advanced Hair, it's a 100% guarantee. So if you could do with some support up top or a friend or a family member for that matter, there's no better time to get it sorted. AdvancedHairStudio.com forward slash final word to unlock your 15% discount. The final word in association with Advanced Hair. Yeah, yeah. I had to go about it, write it out. It's the final word story time, number 95. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's Sunday the 3rd of July. We're sitting on the balcony of my hotel here in Gaul. Jeff's joined me here. He's staying no more than three minutes down the road in his sort of penthouse apartment thing he's got going on there. Uh, uh, I'm just going to say it looked a lot better on the tin than, <laughs> than once you got inside. The, the roof's been leaking and the electricity's been going off. The internet doesn't work. But in the general scheme of things, you know, when people were coming around to fix things and they were saying, oh, we're very sorry for this, I was like, uh, look outside this house. Everybody's got things a lot worse than we do. You, oh, don't, you don't need to apologise to me for a thing. Oh, I detect at the moment with a relatively cool breeze coming through. The cool change, you might mm. say, if you're from Melbourne. Um, Rachel always gets into me about that. She goes, cool change? That is such a Melbourne thing. No one says that anywhere but in this city. Yeah, that's um, because you'd never have one in England because it's always <laughs> freezing. The, I think we might get rain, interrupt play here while we're recording. And if okay. we do, we can rush inside. Um, it should be afternoon five of the test match at uh-huh. Gaul, the first test match. It feels like that ended a number of years ago. Months ago. It was two and a half days ago since um, Australia won that by 10 wickets or whatever it was. So we get the chance to, to reload, reboot and record story time in the usual way. The first time I've been on the show for a couple of weeks because I had test match yeah. duty at, I guess it was uh, Nottingham and Leeds in quick succession and I was in Amsterdam as well. But nice to be back going through the numbers with you as we uh, prepare to start another test match in a few days. Well, the palm trees are uh, swaying in the breeze. You, you might be able to pick up a bit of the wind in the microphones, but that's the that's the price of the ambiance. The, if, if you want to feel like you're here with us on a, a warm sort of late afternoon into early evening it's it's the least hot and sweaty that it's been like you yeah can, by far you could probably walk 10 meters without breaking into a sweat right I even now consider going for a run this afternoon yeah it's it's, it's so 
lovely the weather, with the exception right. of the wind. It's oh, uh, at some point if it stays like this, I will. Mm-hmm. Run, I do want to run, run run up around the fort where we went yesterday, around the walls of the mm-hmm. fort. It's a a glorious place. Have you been all the way to the top yet? No, no, I probably should. It's uh, good. It's good because you can you get a real good sense of how the Indian Ocean does kind of buffet the ground. Like, yeah, I mean, you know it because you can sure. see it on one side, but, but you can see it on two sides. From but the you can commentary. really see it. You yeah. know, you can really sense how close it is, and I suppose that's why the tsunami had such a devastating effect in this part of the world back in two thousand and four. But yeah, privileged to be in this part of Sri Lanka. First time I've been here properly. I've been through Gaul, but not to Gaul. So mm. yeah, another. I guess we're here for another week and a bit given the long gap between test matches. Yeah, it feels like a, a strange sort of hiatus, um, given that there's nothing much happening. You know, normally if you had a week between tests, you'd have a squeeze in a three-day tour game or something against the, the nondescript 11 yes. at the Singley Sports Club or something like that. But this is a very much um, stay-in-one-place sort of tour because nobody can move around very much at the moment. It's worked well in terms of our daily shows because our three days at Gaul ended and they immediately picked up at Edgbaston with mm. the, the England-New Zealand test match where it's now lunch on day four, I suppose. Lunch on day three, sorry. And a crazy test match playing out there. So so if you've not been listening to those, Daniel Norcross and Henry Moran will have you back. Um, they've been on the balcony documenting the madness that is the England cricket team right now, mm-hmm. the, the, the joyous madness. And the joyous madness that is Rishabh Pun. Exactly, exactly. And Stuart Broad and, and Jasper Broad, Broad, Broad and the entire cast. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Uh, we'll come to all that on the weekly show we in a, in we a couple of days. Well, um, so now, now we have work to do, though. Let's get into mm-hmm. it. What do we do? What do we do? Why are we here? You can yell it out. There's no one else saying here. Nerd pledge. <laughs> no pledge. Uh, there literally is no one else staying here. The hotel is empty, and they're still playing this kind of music down in the bar. Yeah, yeah. They're still playing. They're, they're like um, recorded acoustic covers of Taylor Swift songs because I, I assume they didn't want to spring for the royalty for the actual <laughs> Taylor Swift songs. So they've got the, you know, the, the sort of wannabe Nora Jones does Taylor Swift covers CD playing on loop down there. So you might get a bit of that in the background as well. But uh, that's about it. Look, Nerd Pledge is a game. It's a game that we play with people who listen to this show. Uh, here's how it works. Some people out there who listen decide that they want to be the backers of the show. They want to fund this program. And so they send in a contribution, but it's not a normal amount that you would find on a coin or a note. It's a very specific number in between those denominations because their number relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the number means. For instance, first cab off the Nerd Pledge rank this week, it is Patrick McKeon with $15.80 in Australian currency. So 1580, that's the number. The decimal could be anywhere. You could interpret it in any way you want related to cricket in some way. And Pat's left a clue, as he always does, a regular correspondent, and he hopes it'll send you to some real finer word areas, Jeff. It should lead you down the path of some DOBs, comical turn-of-the-century cricket, and potentially a conversation about some slightly modern talking points about how we can grow the game. I think another pledger has made a similar pledge recently. Yes, somebody did, and you'll remember this, Adam, because you talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. Uh, I think it was maybe about a dozen shows ago. Okay. Um, 1580 in this case refers to the number 158, and that was you discovered the winning margin in the Olympic cricket final of oh, 1900. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Which came through as a 158 from somebody else. And you might think we couldn't do the same pledge twice in, say, 12 weeks and still have things to say, but you would be wrong. You would be very wrong. So to uh, extremely briefly recap, a couple of things that you pulled out 
about this game, Adam. Uh, it was notionally played between Great Britain and France, but in fact that meant uh, the Devon and Somerset Wanderers team versus the French Athletic Club Union team, uh, which played 11 British players out of 12. It was supposed to be an 11-a-side game, but they decided to make it 12 on the morning of just because there were supposed to be four teams in the comp, but two pulled out, and so only France and England actually contested the final. Uh, the best part of all of this is that the players in it did not know they were playing in the Olympic final because they thought they were playing a match as part of the, the Paris World's Fair, the Expo. Exactly, yes. Over the course of about six months, there were lots of different sports and exhibitions and so on, which kind of retrospectively got turned into the Olympic final. So at the time, they had no idea. They did get presented with medals, but they got silver and bronze medals. That's and then right. about 60 years later they were retrospectively upgraded to gold and silver medals. So it's very much like all these players who didn't know they played a test match until it got allocated 60 years later. These guys didn't know that they played an Olympic final or won an Olympic final. I think that was because they decided and Ruto was who sent it through mm-hmm. last time. That's right. uh, and I think we originally started looking at Irish clues and yep. we were told it was a city and it was... Nice, yep. nice, mm-hmm. Ruto 69, all yep, the rest. Yep. We, we got there. And, and yeah, that, the reason they went to a, a silver and a bronze at the time was that there were two other nations scheduled to play in a tournament. I yeah, think it was the Belgium French, and Netherlands or Netherlands, something. that's right. Uh, sorry, the French did play, but yeah, mm. the low countries. Mm-hmm. And when they pulled out, they sort of relegated the event. But as we know from having listened to the Dollop podcast about the, the 1904 Olympics, I think we listened to it in New Zealand many years mm. ago, uh, the, the way medals were distributed and events were classified in the Olympic movement back at the start was pretty sketchy. Thus, yeah. why cricket got a start but didn't really assess it appropriately till decades later. Totally. So this thing of it being part of a world's fair, this is the best bit. This was the thread that I then started to follow, right? So it's only the second Olympics. Everything's pretty unofficial. No one knows what's going on. And basically it's it's whatever you can do as an amateur sport. So a bunch of gentlemen at leisure across the continent get together and come up with a range of fucking stupid activities <laughs> that they're rich enough to spend their time doing. So it's a bit like, I don't know if you remember that movie, The, the Great Race, that was, that was like, you know, an evil inventor challenges a hero to a car race across Europe and all kind of, <laughs> kinds of chaos in I think it's called Taskmaster these days for, your, for our UK <laughs> it, listeners. It'd be like a, I don't know, 50s or 60s, maybe it was Jerry, right. Jerry Lewis in it, you know, completely stupid stuff. But one of those kind of ideas where whatever it was that you wanted to do it, you just challenge someone um, to do it. So the, a, a note that I found about the 1900 Olympics says uh, all events which were restricted to amateurs open to all nations open to all competitors and without handicapping are now regarded as Olympic events except for ballooning (laughs) good to know the poor old ballooners the competitive ballonists uh, the aerialists who you know who got pushed out and so and there was maybe it wasn't hot air ballooning maybe it's something else like dogging you know ballooning maybe there's some (laughs) sort of broader well I will I will go on to include this Uh, other sports that were included in the World's Fair, but that weren't necessarily uh, allocated as Olympic sports were automobile racing, underwater swimming, obstacle swimming, live pigeon shooting, and (laughs) motorboating. In keeping with the theme. Imagine that. Imagine you come home and say, I've just won the gold medal in motorboating. motorboating. (laughs) I'm the greatest motorboater in the world. 
What a triumph. I want to get back to underwater swimming. Dennis Pankratoff would have won everything. <laughs> they had to change the fucking rules on him. Obstacle swimming. Imagine that. Did they put a blindfold on them. I, I don't know. Like, so, I'm just imagining James Sherry comparing the obstacle <laughs> swimming. You've got to find like the red key and then the gold key as you, as you work your way around. It's not too late. The obstacle Bring swimming it back. Bring it back. <laughs> now, and, and so basically what this means is that the Olympic final in terms of its standard was complete shit mm. like complete and utter shit and the thing that really gives this away if you want a slight yards tick here is that you mentioned the uh, the bowler the the supposedly british bowler montague toller mm. who took seven for nine in the second innings so the french were bowled out for 70 odd in their first innings and 26 in their second innings surrendered yeah cheese eating surrender <laughs> monkeys um and they weren't even french were they, they weren't even french <laughs> well one maybe one of them were i think maybe two of them were born in france but they were still british yeah Admittedly, it's a close result. They only get the final wicket with five minutes to go in a two-day game. But Montague Toller, who takes seven for nine in that innings to win that final, he's the only one out of the whole bunch who ever plays first-class cricket. And his first-class career looks like this. Six matches for Somerset, 11 innings, 77 runs, meaning he's averaging 7.7, and career bowling of one for 15 off 25 balls. Okay. So that was him at first class level. Absolute dog shit. And he was the star of the final. Equally in the first bowling innings for his team, he didn't even get a bowl and another bloke took seven for So it was literally Very, like... Gary Ishmael Khan energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just turn... Like, whoever wants to roll the arm over can, can pick up seven for against France. So this is how trash it is, right? Other interesting points that I found, they played the final at the Velodrome de Vincent in the, the Vincent Forest, which is, is a cycling velodrome, but it has a cricket say, pitch pretty small outfield. Yes, Literally in the grass bit. It was like an athletics racetrack. And then they just bunked a cricket pitch in the middle. Um, Just stay on that for a moment. The velodrome... If, yeah. I mean, if that were the boundaries, we're talking 30 metres at best. How'd they get bowled out You're for 26? You're watching Shane Kelly going around <laughs> and you're flicking it over his head up to the top of the velodrome. Maybe they had to get it through the cyclists. Okay. You know, that was really hard to get a boundary because it kept bouncing off the bikes. I think the older velodromes are bigger, actually, because don't, isn't right. one of the first-class venues in Sydney that they use, not Bankstown, maybe mm. Blacktown has a has a has an old velodrome around it, Maybe it like used that. to be a hippodrome. Hippodrome. where they used to race hippos. Right, okay. No, it's not true. Horses. 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 Yeah. I'll take uh, your word for it. The, hippo, the Romans, you know, they had the hippodrome was the racetrack. Oh, right, right, know. right, right. Because hippo okay. in Latin means horse. So hippopotamus means horse of the river. That's oh. the Latin derivation of... Because you went the Romans school. <laughs> the, Romans <laughs> were, while. the Romans were evidently incredibly stupid. And they're like, what does that look like? Looks like a river horse. Like... It's a hippopotamus. How does it look like a horse? You absolute nongs. Like, you've been breeding with your sisters for far too long, clearly, and drinking out of lead-lined pipes. You're like, rivers, rivers. Yeah, good one. Hippopotamus. Well done. Right. So, so the velodrome continued being a velodrome for a long time. Uh, the Tour de France used to finish there for a while. Eddie Merckx won all of his tours finishing at the Velodrome de Vincent. And for France as a team, if you check sort of the team on Cricket Archive, they, still, they do call the Olympic team France, even though they were clearly not France. So they have that match in 1900, they play three games in 1910, and then they don't play at all until 1989. So it's a pretty long time between drinks for the French team of not French players. By 1989, not much has changed. The French players in the French team in 89 are Short, Hafiz, Halliwell, Hewitt, Drummond, Shazada, Barclay, Payne, Wasserman, and then there are two French names, Valentin Prumont and Leopold Terry. 
is Pomont, the two brothers, but they're from Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. Right. So, you know, once again, uh, local French interest not that high in, in the cricket. It's also worth noting that the MCC sent a team to France in 2013. Very disappointingly, those matches did not get first-class status, probably because they were 20-over games, I assume. They played six in six days, so they, they weren't very long, whatever they were. I couldn't find out who won those games. I just know that the two happened. But allegedly... And this is, this is where I'd like to, mm. to bring this to a close. Allegedly, the MCC tried to send a team to France in 1789 and then the French Revolution happened and they fled ah. back to the UK. Now, it turns out that's probably not true, but the person who claims to have proved it's not true is John Major, the former Prime Minister of the UK in his history of cricket. In his history, yeah, Who said okay. that didn't happen, but... The rumour about it, the story about it happening, says that it was organised by a guy called Lord Tankerville. <laughs> and if you've ever been out on the piss oh, in Melbourne... Tankerville. You will know that the Tankerville is the one place where you can go at 5am... She's open late. ...aside from Revolver. It, it was when the Rochi used to shut, you'd end yep. up at the Tankerville occasionally. Revolver the on the fun. south side of the river, Tankerville on the north. It yeah. is never a good place to go. I remember seeing a guy getting kicked out there because they used to have goldfish in a tank and he was eating the fish. Um, <laughs> that's the Tankerville. Uh, so just the fact that there was a Lord Tankerville with the same spelling, who presumably was the, the nobleman who came over and founded the Tankerville, I don't know, I'm the Lord of the Tankerville. <laughs> it's exactly what you would expect, some pissed idiot standing on a table, you know, wearing a dishcloth to be saying at the Tankerville at 5am. We'll, we'll, we'll have to send this to the captain of the women's team who follows mm. us on uh, on social media. Remember she went viral last year, didn't she? Reliviette uh, Emmanuel. Uh, mm. She did a brilliant, eloquent interview when France played in the European qualifiers for the current World Cup cycle. And uh, yeah, she, I think she got tagged into some, some final work stuff. We might have referred to the game or mm. something like that. So she can learn the history of French cricket through yep. the through the guise of story time. Anyway, it's coming back because Commonwealth Games in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be yep. there in the UK, in Birmingham. The Olympic Games in 2028, Probably. maybe again in 2032 in mm, Brisbane. Yeah, I think I think 2028's a decent chance. 2032's almost a lock. They want it to be in for 2028 to engage the South Asian community more in, in the Olympic movement. India especially, talking to Brad about this last night at dinner actually, about how they've had some success recently. A javelin thrower won their first individual gold medal last year mm-hmm. and that has been the catalyst for a lot of interest. But the IOC see India as this great opportunity like China was 50 years ago or thereabouts and they see cricket as the way in. So if they get it there for 2028, 2032 it's being hosted in Australia so automatically you have a... a Home team gets a choice. Yeah, or, or, or I should say maybe 2032. So 2028, mmm. um, I'm, I'm getting my Olympic years. Yeah. Is Los Angeles 2028. Yeah, yeah they're, they're trying to get it in there. 2032 is in there already as, a, as an exhibition. It's going to be in there as an exhibition sport. Right. Well, either way, the idea is the sequence will be mm. such that that the next Olympic Games in 2036 could well be in India and then we're, then we're away. Uh, then we're okay, away. Okay, so there, there's right. sort of a longer-term thinking here from the IOC. And just for the record, I saw last week when Chris Gale launched the 60, um, the usual suspect saying, oh, that will be the Olympic sport. That will be what that... No, reminder... It has to have an international championship to be eligible to be an Olympic mm. sport. That's the new criteria. It's okay. not amateur men who, you know, as you described earlier, it's very clear. <laughs> You're saying motorboating is not going to get a chance. Motorboating is not getting a chance because it's not an inter- there might be an international <laughs> motorboating show. I don't want to completely rule it out. don't want to put a line through it. Um, but the... Uh, <laughs> but the it probably is. But the, um, <laughs> the T20 form of the game... Uh, will be what is the Olympic sport and mm. there will be eight teams in it and even though some might say well there's only eight teams what does it matter it frees up funding from the NOC so mm-hmm. Brazil see the Olympic 
ascension is crucial to their development because, yeah, sure, the Brazilian women aren't likely to make it into a top eight anytime soon, but it'll get them funding from their local Olympic committee. Yeah, because and they can applies. try to qualify. They can play qualifiers. They can play and qualifiers and all the rest of it. So that, that, that's why it's such a significant part of the puzzle in growing the game. And I know people are cynical and sceptical about this and say, well, you know, when does it stop? You know, thin edge of the wedge of cricket's in there. Well, I say if our sport can take advantage to an extent of the Olympic movement to grow, then we should. Mm. And if cricket, I mean, if, is golf still in there? Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, piss that off. I, I, and, but the thing is, you can form an argument about almost any sport that shouldn't, yep. you know, you can go, well, sure. why should breakdancing be in there? Why should different versions of BMX cycling be in there? Why should golf, tennis, other individual sports? But, like, they've all done well out of it, so why, mm. shouldn't, you know, why shouldn't we do well out of it too as a sport? Especially when we have a good story to tell about growing the game. Like, it's not as though golf, and I'm, I stand to be corrected here, but it's not as though golf's finding new parts of the world to attract players. Sure. It's an individual sport. We, yeah. we have sort of... A whole world out there, many of whom have not been exposed to cricket until the last 15, 20 years, and we can use the Olympics to, to get them more money and thus raise their standard of play pretty quickly, turbocharge mm. it. Mm. Yeah, well, golf, I mean, golf's only problem is finding new rich people to put money into it because <laughs> it's already got all of them. Cricket, you don't actually have to be a millionaire to play. Right, I think we've done that number. Okay. Given that's about a quarter of the runtime of the show on yep. the first number. Uh, yep. Let us move on to Nick Donovan, who was sent through. Uh, cleverly, he sent through 96 pence, 0.96. Now, he couldn't actually send that through because the website won't let you go that low. It has standards. Patrons like, no, no, I'm sorry, you can't, you're you not going <laughs> under a pound. But, but Nick sent us a higher number and then said, I want my number to be 0.96. Yeah, and, and I thought, given we're in Sri Lanka at the moment, recording together, I should say, on a story time for the first time since... Pakistan back in March. I thought, well, 96 World Cup final has been celebrated over the last week or so. Mm -hmm. It was partly as a commemoration to Shane Warne, but they had, I think, all of the 96 World Cup winning team were at Gaul on day one last week. At least the majority, yep. the vast majority of them were there. Uh, along Especially with Ranatunga, who smacked him for that six that was the yep. breaking point in the run yep, chase. absolutely was. And Kumar Damasena, of course, umpiring his 90th test match last week yeah. as part of that. But I hadn't noticed until looking at the score. I'm amazed to see that. him still there. I just he, He's like the Bill Hunter of umpiring, you know. I was uh, like, oh, yeah. are you still here? He and Ali Mdar are, are going like, to keep doing it yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, he's been he's been he's been still seen as the number one umpire. Yeah, I don't know how I they just measure hadn't this. Seen him in a while. Like every match I'd been at had been Nitin Menon and Maria Rasmus and yeah. Richard Kettlebells yeah. and you know I Big just, Dick and Little Dick, Big Dick and Little Dick. And I was like, all right, well, I just I just hadn't thought of him. And then there he was, just as though nothing. Umpire had changed. Chris Gaffney. You've got to use his full name with Chris Gaffney. Yeah, umpire of course. Chris Gaffney. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, umpire Chris uh, Gastro as he we, was in uh, <laughs> yes. South Africa, was it? We we did have to say a few yeah. times. Uh, I'm sorry, Kumai, you're going to have to change your decision. Damasana didn't have a great game mm. as far as DRS was concerned. But he was there as part of that 96 reunion of sorts. And, yeah, I hadn't. I looked at the, the scorecard for the first time in a long while and I, I didn't know that Australia actually made 241, which was the same score that England, England and New made. Zealand made yeah. in the World Cup final in 2019. Huh. So, you know, we've got our final word number, 213. Maybe the final word World Cup number um, becomes yeah. 241. Two for one. Two, it's a good two deal. Two for one, exactly. Tubby, I remember, got out of the blocks briskly and made 74 from 83. As a kid, I thought he was off to an absolute flyer. And I suppose mm. he was based in, uh, you know, the way that game was, was the seen style in, of the in time. 1996. By contrast, Ricky Ponting, who was a brisk player, 45 from 73. Okay. Steve and Mark wore out in the teens. Shane Warne elevated to number five as the pinch hitter, as he was uh, quite a bit through that tournament, was stumped for two from the bowling of Murali, but Perfect. appropriately Kalawatarana, um, 
did the work as wicketkeeper. And if not for Kaluatarana, there's no way that World Cup story happens. He mm. gets him on that role when he's elevated to pinch hitter as the wicketkeeper in the 95-96 World Series. And that is the start of something. Australia win the final, but what he and then subsequently Joe Syria are able to do inside mm. the first 15 overs, you know, it just changed the way people thought, thus why Shane Warne was elevated mm. to pinch hit in that tournament. Junior Murray was another from yeah. the West Indies and Weird and that so Brendan on. McCullum had such a strong influence on the Sri Lankan one-day team in 1995. <laughs> I don't know how he was able to reach back through time. Uh, He's the only person who's ever thought about scoring quickly, Brendan McCullum. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he should be so, so trite with that. Anyway, uh, Bevan made 36 not out with Stuart Law and, and uh, Paul Rifle at the end. Got him out of the glue and got them to a, yeah. Yeah, a credible score in that era. Now, it's often forgotten that in defending 241, Australia were right on top as well, Jaya Syria was run out in the first couple of overs. In fact, I can't remember who ran him out, but the beauty of mm. sharing a room with Daniel Bredig is I can open the door. Hey, Dan, who ran out Jaya Syria in the 96 World Cup final? It's from third man, so he thinks it's either Rifle or Fleming. It's probably Fleming because he opened the bowling. Thanks, Dan. Speak <laughs> in a bit. One of those two. <laughs> So Jai Suri, like you just keep him in a box. <laughs> Don't feed him after midnight, and then Flem, <laughs> let him get wet. Then Flem gets uh, Flem gets Kalawasarana uh, shortly thereafter, and then yeah, as we know, Aravinda de Silva, a brilliant 107 not out to steer the ship. Asaka mm-hmm. Gurusina, who lives in Australia these days, made 65. Once got hit in the box in his cock in his cock fell in. Uh, Arjuna Ranatunga made um, 47. Uh, not out from 37 at the end to finish the game in the 47th, that big six-off warm that you referred to before. So that's my first option for 96. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My second, mm-hmm. and I didn't know this until looking through the card, we all know Steve Waugh got out a lot in the 90s. I didn't realise he got out for 96 twice in the space of five weeks. Got out <laughs> a lot in the 2000s as well. Hey? <laughs> uh, he, 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 um, he is at Perth against New Zealand. Five in, weeks, that's a water run. It really is. That's a Clem Hill. But for the same score. I mean, you don't see that too often. Okay. I remember the Shane O'Connor delivery that bowled him, hooped it in. Uh, that was on the 20th of November. And then on Boxing Day in front of 80,000 people, it was the first like massive Boxing Day in 97, mm. 98. Uh, war was out. I think it was to the second new ball. He nicked off late in the day. And then you press fast forward 13 months and he's out for 96 a third time in the sequence. And that was when he was bowled by Peter Such uh, on the same day that Darren Goff took his hat-trick uh, later in that, in that final session. So all told, Steve wore 396s. He made a 90 at test level on 10 occasions with Sachin Tendulkar and Rahul Drava, the other two who have that record, equal record of 10. And of active players, the most is five, and that's Angelo Matthews, who we're watching ah. at the moment in this series. So, and a 190 the other, the other week. The other 199 month. the other week. Yeah. Ah. Joined the club. Oh, there you go. So Nick Donovan, let us know. I see in hindsight, uh, as Jeff pointed out before, you pledged in GBP, so you probably weren't talking about the 96 World Cup final, but who knows? You let us know and we'll come back next week. But you may have been talking about the times when Steve Ward didn't make 100 because true. there were many many English observers who got very tired of watching Steve Ward That's make true. hundreds Quite it's soothing to think about the times when he didn't Hi I'm Brian Roddle you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins Right our next number comes in from Daniel O'Connell not the pub 
the man. Um, it's in AUD. The Tanky Bill and the Dan O'Connell <laughs> the together, together again. Oh, there's a golfing the class between those two <laughs> venues. Well, there's a golfing class between the Tanky Bill and literally any other venue. You know, I remember, it's the only place I remember that had Kino stubs. Oh, like you yeah, could go in yeah. and play Kino in the Tanky Bill. Spot, spot match win. Oh, and then they popped like pokies in, and it's, oh, it's the absolute last resort. It's yeah. The, it, yeah. was the, it was the place. Also, the welcome stranger at the front of Ding Dong Lounge. I was yeah. uh, Michael Cooney's here with us this week. Friend of mine, friend of Dan's, friend of everyone's, friend of the show. Uh, and he, uh, he, he and I worked together for a long time, and we were reflecting on a beer we shared at the Welcome Stranger on Burke Street, on the corner mm. of uh, the lane that goes down to where the artist formerly yeah. known as Ding Dong lived, uh, and remembering what a dis- right. horrifying place that is. Again, pokies, right. so much smoke, so grotty. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. yet. You always yeah. know it's open, thus the welcome stranger. It sounds like the move, like when you want to spice up your marriage and so you go out to a bar and you pretend you don't know each other and you try to pick each other up. Yeah. Know, that would be the welcome stranger. Yeah, that's exactly like it. That. Right, so to Dan O'Connell, to the doc, uh, 518, comes with a clue. Jeff, my number relates to a player's best bowling figures, although this guy's cricketing endeavours didn't materialise into a first-class career or a Crick Info player page. His career matches tally is nice. Okay. Now, there's one word that stood out to me in this clue. Endeavours. Cricketing endeavours. Okay. I thought, I know somebody who played for a club that had that word in it. Ah. 518. Oh. Happens to be the career best match figures of one Adam it's Collins, me. who took five for eighteen for Endeavour Hills against Clayton District oh, back yes. in two thousand and fifteen. I remember that game. Now I've done the digging on my cricket, and I've worked out that this is indeed the best match performance. Uh, there's no 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 ten wicket matches on that record, but there is no. this five for eighteen. In nine overs with four maidens. And look, what a time it was. Uh, Adam Collins, captaining the side, selflessly bats himself down at number 11. Yeah. You know, people know the devastating opener. Um, looking after with, the kids. With the club. I was looking after the kids in, in that. Uh, that was the um, when I came back and was captaining the Sunday team. I was playing mm-hmm. on Saturdays, but in the... Uh, in the mercantile comp we had like a development 11 yep. and I was kind of king of the kids so I wouldn't bat in order to make sure they all got a hit selflessly selfless self- well also selflessly uh, made a duck batting at number oh, 11 that day <laughs> <laughs> who got me out uh, caught by A.A. Sati um, but it doesn't actually say who took the wicket on this okay. scorecard so that's not very helpful Nonetheless, um, and nor does it record balls faced or, or anything along those lines but at number 11 uh, last out to finish the innings up at 144. And then Furious, clearly, Furious, with a head of steam, open the bowling. In a devastating partnership with A.M. Christie. Oh, yeah, Linford. You go go one for one. It's a Christie wicket, then a Collins wicket, then a Christie wicket, then a Collins wicket. Okay. And then Collins Collins gets on a roll. He he knocks over the guy who took the catch, A.A. Sati. Okay. Gets him him caught. Uh, M.K. Sati. Sati and Sati got them both um, bold, clean bold, straight through the gate, metal stump out of the ground, I assume. M. Akram fends a catch into the cordon, presumably. A. Bali, LBW, and uh, he's wrapped I up think, five for 18. Yeah, I think what happened in that game, I might be wrong, but I reckon, is that November 2014? Is the, is it's the 2015. 
It's 2015. Oh, sorry, it's 2014-15. Is so it November? Yeah, yeah. No, December. 14th of December. Oh, okay. There must be another game I'm thinking of where it was well, just after Philip Hughes died and we kind of lost our rag a little bit because we didn't bowl short. We did that whole thing where we, we, we just pitched the ball up all day and kind of were not very aggressive and kind of misread the theme of, you know, I, know, I get why people were a bit off kilter that weekend. It was another yeah. game where we were we, we got chased down loads. But I, well, I think this was a tight finisher. Was this it? is a real tight finish. So 144 is what Endeavour Hills put up in the first dig. Clayton District, you've got them nine wickets down, trying to close it out. Uh, they're at nine for 134 when uh, the uh, when the ninth wicket falls. So they're 11 away. And they sneak it home. Uh, probably my Nine shit for 147, here. and they get first innings points. And uh, that's frustrating. We, did, we didn't make the. We missed out on the finals by a game, I think, as well. Well, that I reckon was it. the other thing I reckon happened that day was those five wickets. And you can tell me if I'm right or not. I reckon they might have happened in a flurry, like in the first two overs I bowled. It looks or something like that. It doesn't give me the the overs they fell, but um, they were. No, they looked like fairly evenly. Yeah. Space. Oh, there might have been a flurry in the in the sort of middle of right. the game there. Um, coming in at number ten, H. Arshad makes thirty-five not out, two fours and three sixes in mm. a heroic hand to take Clayton District past the total with one wicket to spare. That's you the, can't complain about being part no, of the classic. I think I think I did. I don't think I did a very good job. But the um, yeah, that was the that that is around the time when I couldn't bowl properly anymore. It was before the. It was, yeah, 14-15 was the last summer I was able to bowl properly and my shoulder went around Christmas. So mm. that's one of the last times I was able to run in and do anything vaguely normal as a cricketer. Kind of sad in a way. I still dream about it all the time, as people on our Discord channel know from the, the <laughs> final word dreams sub-chat. But, um, yeah, I think it was coming out. I, I feel like because around that time of the season it was coming having, out pretty well still. Most of these people are having dreams about us. So there is an entire sub-channel of the, the Discord just related to recording people's weird dreams that yeah. we happen to feature. Like, we just pop up. It's not like people are dreaming about us in that way, but we, we're just in the background somewhere, you know, doing stats or, like, keeping a scorecard <laughs> or something. Now, the only thing that I can't figure out here is, is he said the career matches tally is nice, but I've got 61 matches for you on your my cricket page, not 69. Mm. I found another Adam Collins. Which who, club? I played for a lot of clubs. <laughs> yeah, well, this is on this is on the uh, the my cricket thing that has everything on there. I think. It's but you, got, you get you get it's registered. It's got VSDCA. Yeah. It's got MCA. Yeah. It's got DDCA. Uh, yeah, it's a young fella. You yeah. Know, it's. It, I think. Every, I mean, no, maybe. there's some other comps. So basically, the way that my cricket, okay. they've never quite, as I understand it, I stand okay. to be corrected here, but I don't think they've ever quite got it where they. You're, you don't like have a unique tracking number that takes you sure. necessarily from club to club. So right. I played about 300 games, and I reckon, of senior cricket. And okay. they were spread out across Endeavour Hills at the start and the end, yeah. Mentone for a clump of years in the middle, Western Districts in Canberra, another club in Canberra that Dono got me playing for, mm-hmm. who were called, I can't remember anymore, but we lost the grand final again mm-hmm. due to me. And, well, partly due to me, partly due to Kevin Rudd, but that's a long story. <laughs> um, and... Um, and a number of other clubs across the way. But, yeah, it's never had the, that unique ID track. Right. Well, I did find another Adam Collins who'd played 679 that's not um, me. career yeah. games, yeah. but that's not – it's no. almost a 69. But there, 61 is the total I've got here. Okay, uh, that's in Devil's perhaps, games. Right. Perhaps Dan O'Connell has found something else. Okay. You know, but okay. Um, apparently, apparently somewhere on the internet – you and 69 are together. Okay. Anyway, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for letting me relive that. I'd mostly forgotten that. Maybe because we lost. If we'd won, I'd be able to tell you chapter mm-hmm. and verse, but mm-hmm. I was quite a competitive bastard. Still am.
We're playing on. Um, we're playing on. Uh, we've got a game going on Thursday. We're, um, I'm not sure if you're across this, Jeff, but mm. the touring Australian media will play the touring Sri Lanka media. We had a bit of a warm up on the beach yesterday, playing a game. It went poorly. It went poorly. Mm-hmm. Didn't go well. Louis Cameron, who played state cricket, got hit for about seven sixes, much to our delight. <laughs> One of these local Sri Lankan kids <laughs> kept twatting him into the forest, and we were losing. It, it was so so good. Um, he was getting angrier and angrier. Oh, and I as saw well. the video. He still he came in with a beautiful action. Glorious and he just action. Gets picked up off middle stumps. <laughs> yeah, it's so and good. <laughs> But yeah, we've had our warm-up in the beach and we're ready to roll. I'm not sure if we're playing hardball cricket or um, sort of a softball stuff on, on Thursday, but I think we've got eight players. We asked at the press conference today whether we could have a couple of players from the Aussie team and there's chat that we might have Daniel Vittori as part of it. So we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Okay, all right. Well, Jeremy uh, Coney's refusing to play because he's said he's got a crook hand. Jeremy still plays cricket too, annoyingly, so it'd be good to have him part of it. He's going to umpire. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. Well, it'll be an honour to be dismissed first ball by... JV Coney. Doubleheader up next. All right, We've ready got to go. Danish Babar and Hamish Stairs, uh, one of our patrons whose name is also a sentence. And they have both sent through 238. Danish has sent it through in GBP and Hamish yep. in AUD. So uh, neither has a clue as far as I could tell. Sorry if I've missed a clue there. But first up, I'm going to give you a shot. To yep. see if you can solve it for Danish. I've got some fun final word stuff here, which um, okay. which will be enjoyed, I hope. First of all, um, I, I just kind of put in a few numbers and see what got spat out. Courtney Walsh had 238 of his 519 test wickets caught. That's good. I'm glad I know that now. 45.85%. Let's mm-hmm. move off that. That's pretty niche. We've talked before about Wally Hammond and his we unbeaten have. 238. <laughs> And he actually made that score twice, 238 not out. The yeah. reason we talked about it last time was it was in the Caribbean tour of 1925-26 oh. when, when he broke his cock mm. and he got very ill. Well, he, he mislaid it. He mislaid more, more his cock a number of times, he, it would seem. So that was in a, a non-test match against the West Indies at Bridgetown because the Windies didn't have test status at that point. I wonder if it's because he was out celebrating the 238. Could Maybe be. that was the moment the brought him up. Uh, and then he uh, made 238 not out. Uh, for his home county of Gloucestershire against mm. Warwickshire at Edgbaston a few years on in, in 1929. So, yeah, he was robbed of another test double, I would say, because that 25-26 game didn't count. Uh, but I've got another final word for Avon, a teammate later of Wally Hammond, the Nawa Bapatoli. Oh, thank God. We haven't talked about him for about three weeks. Uh, what do you know? 238 was his highest first-class mm-hmm. score. Uh, at Lords, no less. Actually, I think I mentioned him last week with yes, Fidel. Yes, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> in, in 1931, he made 238 as part of his wonderful season for Oxford University, where mm-hmm. he averaged 93. Um, in that university match, a chap made 201 not out for Cambridge the previous day and broke the university record. And the Nawab the next day broke it, smashed it, sort of Boomer Broad style, made 238 not out. And that record stood until 2005 in that university game between Oxford and, and Cambridge. So it's funny. So he doesn't dominate when he goes to county cricket after graduating in 1932. He plays for Worcestershire briefly. But the real reason he gets picked for England is that he impresses the socks off Plum Warner when taking down a third final word favourite, Titch Friedman, in mm-hmm. the Gentleman versus Players game at Lords in 1932. He danced at him all day long and they're like... Your feet will do well in Australia. We're going to take you on that tour. Mm-hmm. And we kind of know the rest of the story, but in summary, we know that on Testaboo at Sydney, to start the Bodyline series, he makes 102. So one of the, I think it's 21 England cricketers to make 100 at the first time of asking. Um, but he uh, he put Jardine offside because he refused to participate. Uh, when, when, he, when Jardine would clap the hands... 
and Arsene Twal go into the, the leg theory formation. Uh, Nawab of Patawadi wasn't too keen on that. And Jardine retorted, I see His Highness is a conscientious objector. And funnily enough, one test match later, we get shitty about Brad Hodge getting dropped after his double ton. The Nawab makes 100 on debut, plays one more test at Melbourne, and he's given the tin tack by Jardine. Mm. And the suggestion is he'll never play for England ever again. Certainly doesn't play again in the series of 32-33. He does get back through weight of runs in 1934 to play one test match at Trent Bridge against Australia, but that didn't go too well. And we know that later, and this is a story we've told in the past, he comes back to play against England as captain after the war in mm-hmm. 1946. He averages 47 on the tour, but only made 55 runs in the test matches, and and that's kind of it for him. He was going to make a return to England in 1952 to play for Worcestershire again as an older gentleman, as a 42-year-old, but unfortunately he died of a heart attack earlier in that year of 1952, yeah, passing away at 42. Mm. But, yeah, quite the impact. And, yes, it all started with the 238 that he made at Lords as a student, which he never bettered. The Nawab, hard done by uh, Jardine. There are different ways that he was a prick, but sort of new ones bob up, you know, new ones new ones arrive to surprise you at different times. No wonder Norcross likes him so much. Right, uh, that's one half of the doubleheader, and that could be for you, Danish Baba. And as for Hamish, I thought I would look at some bowling numbers, and I wondered who had a test bowling average of 23.8, and I found that it was three people, and this, this is beautiful. One is Alfred Shaw, who played okay. in the very first test match in 1877, yep. took the second five for in test history, first one for England, very, very start of test cricket. The other two are Simon Harmer and Kuldeep Yadav, both current spinners. Right. So one spinner in the very first test there match and two who are still playing to this day. Now, okay. all three of them, at least so far, Harmer and Kuldeep might play more, but all three of them as of now have played seven test matches. Uh-huh. Elfshaw will struggle to add to that. The others might. <laughs> Elfshaw, a dozen wickets in those seven tests. Kuldeep, 26. Harmer, 33. Yep. So vastly different numbers of wickets taken, but they all end up with the same average. In one-day internationals, it's the bowling average of Vakar Yunus, 416 wickets. I, I kind of forgot until we toured there when we were working with him on radio, I, I sort of forgot how prolific he was in one-day cricket. Like, oh, yeah. I knew he was brilliant in one-day cricket, but... In my head, I was like, you know, nearly 400 test wickets. I thought about his test spells, the reverse swing spells with the old ball and all the rest of it, and and just kind of forgot how long he played one day international cricket yeah. for and how prolific he was. Because there's two in the 500 club, Wasim Akram and Murley, and then he's the next, he's third on the list for the, the most one-day wickets. And probably contemporary players won't get up there because they play so much T20. Yeah, that'll, that'll, never, that'll never be breached again. Yeah. It's hard to imagine they'll play the volume of one-day cricket that Murali Waka mm. was in playing. In fact, I doubt there'll be a bowler taking 300 wickets, let alone... Yeah, yeah. Let alone, I think Brett Lee got 298 or something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. And Mitchell Stark somewhere around two, 200 and... Yeah, Stuck's maybe, maybe... I think about 250, yeah. But you, I don't expect... I mean, Stuck's 32, 33 yeah, now, that's what isn't I'm he? He's an absolute... And he's Champion also taken the them, he's taken them in, in gluts that yeah. that other players don't do. You know, he's got more fifers than just about anybody except mm-hmm. Morley. Already Morley and Wackar, I think, are the only two from memory with more fifers than, than Mitchell Stark already. So extraordinary those numbers and, and extraordinary the amount of one-day cricket that they used to play, I suppose. That's 23.8. 238 relates to a test that Wackar Yunus played and Wasim Akram played. 
and this is a good one, in 1998 against Zimbabwe in Peshawar, Pakistan make 296, Andy Flowers out for a golden duck. Put those two things together and you're like, Zimbabwe will lose this test. Fuck all chance. By a, by a margin, right? And they concede a deficit in the first innings. They get bowled out for 238, which is the number. Wakar and Wasim do the job. They take nine wickets between them. Should be game over from there, except then Zimbabwe rock up in the third innings and just roll them over. It's Henry Alonga, it's Heath Streak, it's Pommy and Bangwa, and they bowl them out for 103, Pakistan. Like, rock and roll them. And Wasim takes three in the fourth innings, but Murray Goodwin, who we were talking about on the show only a few weeks ago, 73 not out, gets them home, three for 163, and they win, a famous win, because it's one of only 13 Test match wins in Zimbabwe's history. Wow. Uh, seven of those have been against Bangladesh. So they've yeah, only yeah. won six test matches that were not against Bangladesh. One was against Afghanistan. So they've got, I think they won three against Pakistan and two against India, and that's it against the top table nations. And, and it was away from home. So a huge, huge accomplishment for them to win in Pakistan. And my last tilt at this number is that Grace Harris in T20 cricket for Australia takes her wickets thus far at this same bowling average of 23.8. Now, you know the story of Grace Harris in terms of the batting, you know, about the centuries off 50 balls in the big bash and all of the rest of it. Only 13 matches for Australia in T20 cricket over the years. Six of them right at the start in 2015 against England and Ireland. Uh, Five of them the next year in 2016 and then nothing until earlier this year she got to play two during the Ashes, which I hope means she's back in consideration. It it, it doesn't, it doesn't, so there's a bit to this. I spoke a fair bit to Grace when we were over at Fairbreak. By the way, she took a hat-trick in Fairbreak and Mm -hmm. a Fifer, so she can still seriously play. So both of those one day is that she was... T20. No, T20, sorry, that she was credited with playing... She didn't bat in. One was washed out entirely. Mm. The other got washed out after a few balls were bowled or something like that. So she hasn't yeah, actually right. had a chance to bat for Australia since. They took her to the World Cup as one of the travelling substitutes mm. that COVID permitted. And she jokes herself, and I think she said it publicly, the fact that she described herself as a great Uber driver or something like that. And that she's, right. um, she was uh, in the car with Sean Flegler. And mm-hmm. he's a, he, he, you know, she's a great person to have around the team. Mm-hmm. They like her personality because she's a ripper. And thus they had her around the World Cup squad, and that was a good thing for them. Whether she plays again or not will be dictated by how she goes in the next few months, I suppose. Because they're not they're not a team in transition or anything like that. But you know no. there are some big tournaments coming up in, in women's T20 format of the game. They've obviously got the World Cup, which is what mm. eight or nine months away. So if she has a d- big WBBL, yeah. but she wasn't picked. I note for the Commonwealth Games squad. That that was probably the reference point that right. I was looking for a few months ago with her. Could she force her yeah. way in? As a finisher, but in effect, Ash Gardner overtook her. But equally, That's what happened there. equally, there are decisions to be made about pursuing a more aggressive policy with the bat, and they already did that in the T20 team by foregoing Elise Perry and putting Talia McGrath in. And, you know, that was about yeah. being able to score faster. And so, I think Grace still has a potentially run to play. She's still in those 13 appearances. She's scored her runs at a strike rate of 156, and she's taken half a dozen wickets at. 23.8 so I'd love to see her back she's she's a really good person to have around Australian cricket and great head on her shoulders and I don't know how old she is now but I'm tipping it's probably like late 20s early 30s plenty of time mm. she hasn't been burdened by constant travel and constant touring and all the rest of it she's kind of been one out one back playing big bash of course but 
I reckon if she got an opportunity later in her career now, she'd be super effective for Australia. Let's hope it happens. Michael Fitzgerald has sent through $4.19 in the Aussies. Uh, his clue for you, Adam. Although they never reached their full potential on the field, they have still made an enormous contribution around the boardroom table. Yeah, my assumption straight away here was Ian McLaughlin. So another player who was involved in that Oxford-Cambridge that sort of world. He played for Cambridge where he made his first class debut when studying over there. Then he came back to Australia and in the summer of 1962-63, an Ashes summer, out of the gates in style, so much so that he was made 12th man for his home test match at Adelaide Oval. And he was on, he was like next batter in in 62-63, but never quite got there. In the end, he was doing a Masters of Law and um, decided to pull back from playing first-class cricket, mm. which a lot of players did who had professional careers in that era because they couldn't commit to both when there was no money in it, especially when they weren't playing for Australia or any chance of playing for Australia. So he went away, and I'm pretty sure he ran the Farmers' Federation or something like that. He was in federal parliament from 1990 onwards. The Farmers' Union? Not quite was the Farmers' Union. Was he in charge of the ice coffees? He wouldn't have been in charge of the Farmers' Union, I assure you. He was, uh, he was a conservative politician. That doesn't mean you can't like ice coffee. True, true. And from Adelaide, and from Adelaide. But no, Ian McLaughlin was um, the member for... Barker, I think, uh, and he was a federal minister. He was the defence minister between 1996 and 1998. I mostly remember him when I was coming through in politics mm -hmm. for the, the the note in the wallet scandal of 2006 when... It's usually where you keep them, isn't it? Yeah, he... he I think I'm right in saying, is he Peter Costello's father-in-law or something like that? Or there's certainly a... Okay. Maybe not father-in-law. There's some family link there. And he brokered a deal, alleg allegedly broke a sort of curability agreement style thing with Howard and Costello back before they won office in 1996 ah. and Ian McLaughlin held the note in his wallet that they'd both allegedly signed up to ah. all those years okay. and in 2006 when Costello was being repelled to become the Prime Minister and replace mm -hmm. John Howard when Howard was reluctant to leave, he broke his silence with this story, having been out of the Parliament for a number of years, having served as one of Howard's Cabinet Ministers to right. say that, no, no, this happened, here's my version of events and and all the rest of it. Anyway, between times, after his nine first-class tons and, and all the rest, he went on to become, uh, and post-politics, uh, mm -hmm. he was a Cricket Australia board director for a really long time, a very effective one. He was the chairman of the SACA. Um, he was, you know, he's, he's been a giant of South Australian Sports Administration, uh, which made me automatically think that's where we're going. But, yeah, you look through his numbers and there's no 419 that I can identify there. We've had 419 before with Alf Littleton, the wicketkeeper, who took four wickets bowling lobs, but looking at his obituary, he didn't have sort of a, a post-cricketing life as an administrator, no. or not that there was such a thing in the late 1800s, I suppose. And, and sort of current, you know, there's there's Greg Rowell on the CA board and Michael yeah. Kasparovich was, yeah. but you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that they've contributed vast amounts in the, the way the clue is phrased makes it seem like someone who was there for 40 years or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's Nathan Bracken. He took four for 19 against Sri Lanka in a World Cup game in 2007, which I thought I'd drop in given we're in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. he, but he didn't get into the federal parliament when he ran. Uh, he ran for either Robertson or Dobell, one of the two Central Coast seats in 2013, as a fairly sort of nutty independent and was, uh, um, was Nathan rejected. Nathan Bracken did. Yeah, he did. did he, he did. He ran on. I can't remember how that happened. Um, I don't, I, there's someone I think he's linked to, but I don't want to say it in case I'm wrong. Either way, he didn't get anywhere near winning that seat. Uh, Jimmy Binks was cap 419 for England, sort of more your ODB type, having played two test matches and unlucky not to wicket keep in more for England. Usman Khawaja, 
his test cap 419, but he mm-hmm. fulfills his potential. Thus, doesn't meet the criteria of Michael's clue. However, I don't doubt for a heartbeat he'll be a great administrator one day. Mm-hmm. So, with all of that said, Michael, I'm going to take... Unless you've got something to go with here. I've got one for you. Oh, here we go. Keith Bradshaw's first season for Queensland. Oh, he made 419 runs. Outstanding. I've gone the wrong South Australian, wrong South Australian administrator. It's got to be McLaughlin who, I was thinking, who's the greatest administrator? Yeah, like, absolutely. Who's, who's, up the, who's on the podium, certainly, yep. for those who really contributed. And I thought, Keith Bradshaw's got to be something in there. Debut season, uh, made it ton early on in his Played season. Played for Tassie, right? And made 419 runs. Yes, for Tasmania. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, in a way, I'm glad that's the case. I know we celebrated uh, Keith's life on the show when he passed away late last year, I think it was, but yeah, no doubt what he achieved both at the MCC and at the SACA. He qualifies as a great administrator. And yeah, whether he fulfilled his uh, potential on the field, it doesn't really matter because what he did off it was so substantial. 25 first-class matches over his career, but yes, everything that he did after that, um, his, his work as a right-handed bat is probably relatively unimportant, I suppose. <laughs> uh, two first-class centuries and four fifties in his career. I wonder why my brain went to McLaughlin and not to Bradshaw. Mm. Like, the first thing I thought was it has to be in McLaughlin. Mm. Anyway, insights of the way I think. Uh, right. Let's go next. Let's do more. Sure. Tom Screen is next up for us today. Now, his pledge, well, it can be read in two ways. It's, it's read as 4.70 but he's also sent through four pounds and seven pence. Jeff, you've got to explain this first. I think. Okay, so he he sent through 470, and then a couple of weeks later he changed it to 407. And so I don't know. I mean, I could have clarified, and, and on another day I would have, but on this day I decided I liked <laughs> the idea of having two possibilities. Okay. Um, either, I don't think it would have been a new number after, you know, 10 days or two weeks, so, so I, I was assuming he was correcting it to 407, but mm-hmm. it could also be 470. So... If it was supposed to be 407, which is more likely given that's what he changed it to, then the obvious candidate, given it's in pounds, would be the number of runs that England make on the first day of Edgebaston 05, which we talked about pretty recently on Storytime 80. We talked about that first day with the number 407. I think we had a double header for 407 that day. So, Tom, if you want to refer back to episode 80, you can find more things that we have said about 407 there. But something else that I dug up around that 407. I mean, this is a fairly niche thing, but it was and remains the fastest inning score of 407 in tests. But that's significant because it went past the Australians of 1921. Third test at Leeds, they go at 4.36 and over, which mm. seems crazy considering the era. And that is because they have Charlie McCartney yep. in that team. And he says, bugger it, I'm just going to score quickly. Amazing how Brendan McCullum had such an influence in 1921. Just <laughs> incredible how he reached back through time and space like that. 115 in three hours for Charlie McCartney. Uh, Warwick Armstrong, the big ship, chips in with 77 in an hour and a half. And then there is... Big ship, big guts. Yep. Yep. Big, big sh- boy. Big shits. Big ship. <laughs> uh, presumably. I don't know. <laughs> like <laughs> elephant enclosure stuff. Uh, fast runs from Nip Pellew, Johnny Taylor and Sammy Carter. They're such 1920s names. Yeah. So they're all scoring quickly and that enables them to rack up 407 and then win in, in three days, which, you know, it was hard to get test match wins in those days when a lot of matches were only three days long. They whitewashed that series, the Australians, so they didn't have any trouble winning across that series. So, England's 407 in the Ashes, right? Now, I knew that this was a good clip, 5.13 and over. I knew it was a fast innings, but I hadn't looked it up historically. So, 
of all the scores on record where you can find an over a runs per over rate of scores as big as 407 or bigger there are only three in test history that were faster than england on the first day of edgebaston in 05 that's better than i thought like i i just assumed there'd be there might be 20 or so but there are three one of those is when Saywag goes crazy making a double hundred against Pakistan on yep. like the flattest of tracks after Pakistan had made 650 or something. The other two are teams beating up Bangladesh. So one of those is Sri Lanka when they've got Adipatu, Jayasuriya, Sangakkara and Jayawardena and they smash the Bangladeshis around. And the other of the three faster than England in Birmingham in 2005 is... England a couple of weeks earlier in 2005 against Bangladesh, just before the Ashes. Oh, right. yeah, Triscothic yeah, yeah. again with a big 150, and they go crazy once again. So three faster scores, and one of them was England about, what, well, probably about a month before that test match against Australia. Uh, and the other thing that I thought, if I decided to interpret this as 470, I thought, what if, what if I went back to the bowling averages list and I looked at who averaged exactly 47 in tests? Who? Matt Parkinson, the inexhaustible A.E. Stoddart, and Fluid Detroit. Oh, talk about ultimate final word dinner party. Oh. Oh. I reckon it's going to be Parky, you know. Yeah. It'll be something else relating to him with 407 before he made his debut. I don't think he would have... Wouldn't have no, because, yeah, he, he, does it, this does would have come in before go? he debuted, so his average oh. of 47 in Test cricket couldn't apply. Oh, OK. That's a shame. Yeah. But Still... What a trio. What a trio. What a trio. Oh, and another Parky one. Parky loves to party. A.E. Stoddard, he fucking loved to party. Yeah. Don't know about Fluid the Toit, but I I, he's he toit did. like a toy guy. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> you know, there is no way he didn't have a good time yeah. when he was playing, you know, 17 aside matches. He and likes all the, the rest party of it. party. <laughs> yeah. And an, another 47 average who, who I didn't mention in that trio was Ashwell Prince, who. So that's been my name for Barat through the, yes, the chess right, series. The because, so he keeps having to come on and do two minute spots when someone else hasn't arrived yet and I, I described it as being like when someone goes off injured after four balls of an over and Asheville Prince has to bowl the next two <laughs> deliveries. So yeah, it is, it is a deeply final word number to have a test bowling average of 47. Beautifully done. Tom Screen, uh, let us know. Our last number today is from Ben Gleeson, 501AUD. There was no clue in this for me, so I could take it any which way I felt. A pair of Levi's. A pair of Levi's, a pair of Brian Lara's. I didn't want to do Brian Lara though for obvious reasons. We've done Lara before. I had a quick squiz at <laughs> so um, a lot of people. Nick Cook, who wore cap <laughs> 501, uh, who's another who turned to umpiring post-playing. We've had a couple of those recently. He played 15 test matches as a left-arm mm-hmm. orthodox for England between 1983 and the 1989 Ashes. I didn't realise what a great start he had, though. He's 11 for 83 in Karachi, uh, just after his test taboo. Uh, the best figures ever for an away bowler in Pakistan. And I remembered that when going through my prep, my inexhaustible uh, prep for the uh, series <laughs> earlier this year that Nick you Cook came up. You are the A.E. Stoddart of prep. It, it is antithetical to the party um, <laughs> atmosphere. You're like, I'm sorry, I cannot party. I have to spend 19 hours researching every single player in this series. Joe Root's batting average right now, as of his dismissal yesterday, is 50.07. So if you round it up, mm. as we would on the final word, yep. 50.1, thus 501. That and would be I an thought... incredible level of foresight from uh, Ben Gleeson who gave us his pledge months ago. Unless he was pledging about Dennis Compton, who had a Mm-hmm. Test batting average of 50.06 just ticked over the 50. Mm-hmm. Now, 
he wouldn't get the extra tenth from Wisden, as no. we detailed earlier this year. You need to get to the next marker to, to earn it sure, with them, sure. which is obviously ridiculous. And one day, hopefully, we'll be able to convince Lawrence to argue with someone to change that. But we recognise it on the final word. Mm-hmm. His batting average, according to Wisden, would be 50.00. According to the... Fi- oh, no, it would be 50 point... No, it wouldn't be. He'd need to reach the tenth to get it. So if in Wisden, Compton's batting average would be 50 on the knocker. On the final word, 50.1. Mm. Now... Compton's a giant. Compton, they, they do two decimal places in Wisdom, don't they? Maybe I'm acting on the second. No, the, the, when, you, when you're dealing with the second decimal point, it doesn't act sure, on the first. Sure, sure. So, so, no, he'd be 50.0 for the purpose of Wisdom, but not for the purpose of what we do. So that's homo thing where it was 28.01. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. Sure. Yeah, he was a risk taker. He was ahead of his time. He was sort of a fast-paced player in a sluggish decade. Not the start of his career, but... Towards the end in the 50s, it was a sluggish time, but England were the best team in the world and Compton was a, a big part of that. Contrary to kind of popular belief, he wasn't posh or anything like that by upbringing. He was the son of a decorator. You know, he went on to the Lord's Ground staff. That's a very niche insult. As a professional, yes, yeah, son of a decorator. You son of a decorator, get back here. I used to get a bit of that when I played cricket, actually. You son of a banker, which yeah. my dad did at the time. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he went on to the Lord's Ground staff before the war. He was playing football side by side, famously with Arsenal on the wing. Ah, Inevitable. It makes sense that your dad works in banking because on Fridays they love to close early. (laughs) (laughs) To shut at 4pm. Very good, very good. (laughs) Well, he certainly did throughout that time that we've been documenting about us leaving stuff early. Yeah, he, he was en route to England from the moment he sort of rocked up at Lord's and made his test debut in 1937. Mm-hmm. He was actually run out backing up too far in his first innings, but not run out by the non-striker, run out with a ball hit back at the bowler, fingertips uh. onto the stumps. For 65, but robbed of a, a ton on debut. Uh, robbed of joining the club with the Nawaba Batawadi that we talked about mm. earlier today. Does get a century at Trent Bridge in 1938 against Australia, but only gets one when Len Hutton makes his 364 in the same series, who he became a bit of an internal rival with. Hutton and Compton didn't always see eye to eye. He elected to play football in the winter of 1938-39 rather than going to South Africa. So he didn't play in the 10-day epic in Durban, which is probably for the best because, you know, I don't know whether he had... uh, My sense is Compton wasn't a man who had the patience for a 10-day test match. He had other things to do. Internal rival sounds like a Steven Seagal movie, like one of those straight-to-video ones that he shot in Bulgaria or something. Oh, our, our, our podcast pal, Nick Tuvey, um, power from other things too, uh, loves screenshotting whenever he sees in a newspaper, love rival. <laughs> whenever there's like a love rival story, he'll send me the, uh, usually in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, they love a love rivalry in that newspaper. Mm. But then I got that far and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to Compton post-World War II. His story's too good. We should tell it properly. Not the sort of Especially considering it's almost no chance that the number we're dealing with here for Ben is Dennis Compton, right? So let's park him to one side. We'll come back to Compton. Someone give us a clue that relates to Compton that we can really indulge in his story because it deserves as much treatment Mm. as we gave, say, Colin Cowdery about six months ago. We spent half an hour talking about him. My sense is that that Compton deserves a a similar amount of attention. Something Brill Cream related. A little dabble, do you? Yeah, exactly. So... I'm a Dapper Dan man. <laughs> I thought, what about five for one? I thought, well, of course, there is a famous five for one in Test cricket, although not the bowling figures of the of the cricketer in question. Now, we all know what Botham does at Headingley in 1981. We all know how he turns the series on a dime. Uh-huh. You know, the 149, the Bob Willis spell of eight for 43. Okay. I mean, that is so well known. Having been to England on cricket tours, I reluctantly concede that I I have 
been informed once or twice. They've yeah. replayed it a couple of times yeah. here and there. Well, what they should replay more often is what Botham does the next week at Edgbaston. Like, I guess in the abstract, I knew that what Botham does, I know he makes the 149, he takes a 5 for 1, and then he makes the 118 not out in 102 balls at Old Trafford in three consecutive test matches and whips it away. Mm. But I reckon the highest Brendan degree McCullum. of difficulty, I reckon the highest degree of difficulty is actually the middle. It's the second bit of the, of the, of the three, of the trio okay. of, of match-winning efforts. Australia are 105 for four, chasing 140 to win the Ashes. I mean, yeah, at Headingley, they're all out for 120 or whatever it is, but Willis is going through them. They are in a really strong position. Alan Border's batting. They should get the job done. They've only got 35 runs to win the Ashes with six wickets in hand. Embers gets Border. And then Botham comes on and takes five for one in 28 deliveries, a collapse of six for 16. Australia lose the test match by 29 runs. And, I mean, you go through it. It's an extraordinary spell of bowling. I mean, in terms of the way that he was able to go through, he bowls Martin Kent, he bowls Rod Marsh, leg before wicket Ray Bright, caught behind Dennis Lilly, and the last man to go, Terry Alderman, bowled from his third delivery. It's stump to stump stuff. It's clearly both of them at his most potent and dynamic. And yeah, that spell of five for one in 28 balls keeps England in the ashes for the second time in a row. Of course, they go on to win it at Manchester the following week. So John Ashdown in The Guardian, our colleague who we work with from time to time, described it as the forgotten miracle in a piece he wrote about Edgbaston 81. And I completely agree. And yeah, I think if you judge it just on the fourth innings, I reckon it's even more dramatic than Leeds. And if you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But that's my sense of the situation. And that's not to discredit what Willis did either. But, you know, that's, a, that's a, an epic in two parts. It's the third innings and the fourth innings. It's the follow-on. It's what happened with both them losing the captaincy and so on. With Edgbaston, it's just pure magic at the last possible moment to drag that series back from the brink. Just, just that, those moments of inspiration that led him to get out his camera phone and hit tweet you know those moments of what are magic. you thinking what are you thinking what are you thinking <laughs> things that you can share with the world that will uh, shade that will, things that you can share with the world that will, that <laughs> the Ian out- Botham story <laughs> it's good to have a body of work that will outlive you you know that must be a nice feeling and having your slug on Twitter is certainly a body of work <laughs> that's an apt description for that shot that has been story time those are the numbers now if you want to play the game very simple you go to patron it's spelt Confusingly, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patron.com slash the final word. You sign up, you put in a number, we put it on the list, it comes around on the show. It couldn't be any easier than that. Yeah, As opposed it. to the other website we've got going, advancedstudio.com forward slash final word. No the on the front. You heard us talk about that when we were previewing the show before the, uh, the music played. But Advanced Air Studio, you get 15% off. Just go to that website and you are away. And mm-hmm. a bit of housekeeping too. We didn't do any revisits today and we won't do any revisits next week either because we're in the thick of things with Test Cricket right now. But yep. when Jeff joins me in England after this series, We'll have a couple of weeks to do another massive revisit special. So we'll get back to even Stevens before the Commonwealth Games. Uh, confirmations. I've got a couple of confirmations for you before okay. we go as sure well. Uh, James Tiernan's number of 485, to tie in with what we were talking about earlier, was indeed the score made by A.E. Stoddart. You guessed that correctly because you know that number like it is tattooed on your soul. He says, uh, now to come up with something more original, less convoluted. No, no, we love unoriginal and convoluted. And the next confirmation is Alex Brown, 527. I spent some time with Alex on evening four of the Nottingham Test match. Little did he know what was about to happen on that final day with Johnny Bairstow. In fact, he wasn't there for it. He went home 
uh, that night. He got the last train, I think. Uh, spot on about Cape Town and the start of the McCullum rain. It was 5 for 27 that New Zealand were at one stage on that first morning. But the story is even deeper. I rocked up on that morning to find that the ticket that I had booked wasn't there and nobody knew anything about it. By the time I was in, 27 for 5 was actually the score. Uh, in the end, I had loads of braai and went to the winelands in the Cape, but still a load of cash to watch us be awful. Thanks to Baz for changing that. Oh, the influence of Brendan McCullum. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> just all the way through cricket history. Uh, Chris Burns, 11.13. He says, spot on, of course, with Mike Proctor. Yes. He took 1,113 wickets across professional cricket. True great just, of Just for your county. Just for your favourites. Oh, for... Just uh, for the freaks. Gloucestershire. Yep. I don't know where it is, but I know it exists. <laughs> um, a true great of the game at a time when it was still possible to be regarded as such mm. with little or no profile from test cricket. That's a good point. Mm. Uh, Ollie Goldman, 281. It was the number of minutes that Alex Tudor batted in the match where he made his 99 not out. Um, Ollie says, thank you for brilliantly telling the story of Alex Tudor's unbeaten 99. One of my favourite things about cricket is seeing a player you like excel at something they're not really supposed to. As a kid, Tudor's blistering knock ignited my love of test cricket, so I wanted my first nerd pledge to honour him. Back to the drawing board. Lovely stuff, Ollie, and I can tell you, Tudor is a ripping fella, so you've, you've had a good um, childhood hero there. Alan Simpson, 188. Now, this was a Daniel Norcross special uh, <laughs> where he concluded it was about a test match where part of all four innings was played on one day and the eventual target to win for the West Indies was 188. I think that's how it went. He was right. Oh, no. Yes. Dan was indeed correct, says Alan Simpson, with the second day of the 100th test between England and West Indies at Lords. Sorry, the 100th test at Lords it was. Oh, okay. Between England yeah. and West Indies in 2000, where a part of all four innings were played on the most batshit of days. The solution, though, was a lot more straightforward than the victory target. Courtney Walsh was trapped in front by the first ball of the day to end the first innings. England were none for none after one-point overs of the fourth innings at the close of play. Right. In between times, England had been all out for 134 and West Indies all out for 54, meaning that 188 runs were scored in the day. That The fact that it was also the victory target is very neat but coincidental. This was the first time a single day had seen all four innings, but it happened again at Newlands in 2011. Yes. The crazy South Africa-Australia test. Four innings in one day. <laughs> Hiding in the depths of your imagination. So, Ellen says... For you specifically, Adam. Yeah. No occurrences in 120 plus years, then twice in 11 years. Outstanding. Just the Absolutely sort of thing. Absolutely perfect, Alan. Thank you. Great note for us to end on. In fact, we'll end on Big Jeff. The other Big Jeff. Yes. To 11. Uh, he can confirm that you got the pledge right in relation to Damien Martin. That's the number of runs he made in, on the 2004 tour to India. Very good. Thanks again for the show. No, thank you, Jeff, for yep. making it possible, Big Jeff. I have Jeff. to reply to when Big Jeff messages, I have to reply to him as Little Jeff. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting inversion I of hope roles. that's how Richard Kettlebrow and Richard Lingworth communicate <laughs> yeah, with each other. I hope so. Signs off, Big Dick and Little Dick. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, this has been the final word story time. Number 95. We're about to watch the Grand Prix here at Silverstone. Love you for coming. Advancedstudio.com forward slash final word for your 15% discount. Get your locks done. Uh, if you like what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word and get involved in the nerd pledge clue we'll be back for story time 96 next week thank you everybody for pledging thank you for being part of the conversation on discord which i truly adore whenever i get the chance to jump in there it makes me a better person uh, and i'm looking forward to playing cricket with some of you on the 16th of september i've spoken to the able dream boys it's all happening they've got six players we've got about seven players declan lawler and dan price are running the team in my absence well i'm going to be there but 
they're going to run the team. And we're getting Dulwich Cricket Club sorted out this week. So that all uh, ticks over on Discord. If you want to play on that day uh, and you want to be part of what we do, all the fun and games are that, patreon.com forward slash the final word. All right, that's it. We're off. Bye Bless now. you. Bless you. Bless you, everyone. I had to go about